Good evening. My name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Redevolve, our global webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very happy to have with me here in the broadcast Roger Welsh. Roger, uh, great you're here. It's a delight. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be with you and uh, be with your audience. Just uh, for the people who might not know you, uh, some uh, words uh, to introduce you. You're a professor of psychiatry, philosophy, and anthropology at the University of California in Irvine in California. You're author of many books. One of them, one of the last one, I think, is The World Great Wisdom, What Sages Say About Living Wisely and Well. And you are a well-known author and speaker in the field of transpersonal psychology and integral thinking, And in fact, I would like to start our conversation with, on one hand, a very simple, but on the other hand, a very demanding question. But I really would like to uh, kind of um, put your mind uh, and all your psychological, spiritual background to ask you, from your life experience, uh, uh, what, is it, what is important to live a good life? in the days that we are living in right now? Ah. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful question. And uh, I suspect for uh, both of us and for practically all our listeners, this is one of the key questions that uh, guide our life. Um, and it, it, if we look at it from various perspectives, one, it's one perspective, it's what's called a sacred question. That is a, a question which if we go into it deeply, uh, it becomes a center and focus of our lives and the answers we give and the depth with which we explore it really become the guidelines for uh, the direction and depth of our lives. Uh, from another perspective, it's what in Zen would be called a Genji koan, that is, it's a koan which arises out of life itself. And so, of course, there are many ways into this, what is, you know, what is important for a, a good life in our times. Uh, let's start with intention, because a good general principle before beginning anything is to ask, what is this for? Mm -hmm. And the answer really determines the direction and direction uh, and ways in which we proceed. So why, you know, what is, why do we seek for a good life and what is it? Uh, well, I'll speak from my own, out of my own experience. I mean, looking at this, the more deeply I look, the bedrock I come to is, well, the, the goal is to reduce suffering and enhance well-being for as many as possible. Now, how we unpack that uh, will depend on our own particular perspective and the amount of reflection we've given. For me, it becomes how can we best serve the welfare and awakening of all? And at a deeper level, it points us towards the Bodhisattva aspiration, which is, as far as I can see, the highest ideal that the human mind has ever conceived, the idea of offering one's life as an instrument of service with the recognition that the deepest kinds, the deepest roots of our suffering really are a reflection of our unconsciousness, our, our um, immersion in delusion or ignorance or whatever 
phrase you want to give it, and that the optimum contribution involves not only working to deal with the outer situations and problems such as starvation and malnutrition and global and social unrest, etc., but also simultaneously to deal with the underlying root causes and one of the deepest causes at the individual level, but also the collective is our individual and collective unconsciousness. And for that, you know, as, as I said, uh, it seems like the bodhisattvic aspiration is perhaps one of the most profound perspectives on that. The, the offering of one's life for the welfare and awakening of all by awakening and actualizing one's own capacities as fully as possible in order to be an optimal instrument of service. Mm. The reason why I started with this question is because, of course, um, in order to answer this question, uh, we really also have to ask who we are because only yeah. from, from there, really, uh, the answer makes makes any sense. And I see you as uh, one of the representatives of... Uh, a new spiritual awakening in the West in the last uh, 30 years uh, where uh, independent or at least a degree independent of uh, the traditions of the great world traditions, there was a new understanding or a new search for the depth of life where our mm-hmm. understanding who, of who we are as humans is not just a kind of um, our... Um, uh, utilitarian, uh, uh, pragmatic, uh, materialist understanding, but there's something that we do call spiritual. And you can say that there was a big spiritual movement in the last 30 years that is new. Uh, we are not really in the same way living in a secular age anymore uh, as, as we used to be. There, there is more interest, or let's say more fresh interest in something like spiritual questions, more new interest. At the same time, I find also that um, uh, this spiritual movement uh, that had different waves, there was the New Age spirituality, there was uh, transpersonal psychology, there's integral uh, spirituality, that quite often uh, it was very much related also to our own psychological well-being. And there's a big connection uh, between the spiritual Search that we experienced in this uh, last decades and our psychological understanding. But my question is that um, maybe this uh, psychological context that we are searching in is also a limiting context because uh, mm. we, we start to do therapy, we start to meditate, uh, go for spiritual wisdom, but the context is something like a psychological well-being. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, we are at a point, I mean, there's a lot to it. I, I don't want to say that this is a wrong thing to do, but maybe there is a limitation that we are more aware of right now than 30 years ago, and that a good life also has to kind of cross a border here and go beyond this psychological context of the spiritual search. Is this something that you, who also is from your own career, comes very much from this psychological foundation, uh, would agree with? Yes, I, I think you're pointing to something very important, that the perspective we bring to 
uh, either search for a good life to spiritual practice, both uh, usually both serves and limits. And any particular perspective has its has its. Uh, in traditional Huayan Buddhism, they say that every every perspective both reveals and conceals. Mm -hmm. And so the psychological perspective, which has been available to us over the last, say, 40, 50 years now, which has begun to acknowledge, not necessarily so much in the mainstream, but at least in fields like transpersonal psychology, integral psychology, begun to recognize things like states of consciousness and post-conventional development. Those have been doorways which have both legitimized and uh, and explained and encouraged both a psychological and spiritual growth. And at the same time, uh, the deeper levels of spirituality involve a moving beyond concepts, a so-called transconceptual experience, direct experience, intu intuition, and also uh, the psychological maps we have just aren't yet as adequate to the full array of spiritual experiences. So I think you're pointing to something very important and also the psychological maps have not until quite recently appreciated the importance of, for example, contribution and service. Now we're beginning to see the, the appearance of a literature on contribution service so, and the benefits for, of both of that for both the giver and the receiver, the idea of a helper's high and so forth. But, but still these do not approach the depth of some of the spiritual traditions themselves. And of course, the spiritual traditions, <laughs> historical traditions themselves have their own limits. Uh, you know, they're couched in, in often archaic language and concepts and they need updating. And another advantage of these psychological maps is that they've begun to translate venerable, valuable ideas into a contemporary conceptual framework and language and concept system so as to make them more comprehensible for our time. I mean, we as a culture, uh, on one hand, uh, we have something like a spiritual opening that um, also reaches mainstream. If you talk about uh, mindfulness, uh, mindfulness was something that uh, just five years ago uh, was was a fringe appearance somewhere. And uh, I, if I'm not wrong, it, it at least was twice on a Times cover. It was definitely on a Spiegel cover in, in Germany. So it, Google is talking about mindfulness. So that, that there's something where uh, uh, something that in its particular uh, roots has a, a direct Buddhist meditation background. It's just uh, kind of reframed also in a medical, psychological understanding of what meditation is about and uh, understood as mindfulness. There is something where we are aware as a culture that uh, we have to go um, to um attentive way of relating to reality let's uh, let's put it that way and where our usual pragmatic instrumental relationship to everything is uh, not uh, creating uh, a good life not for yeah. 
for, for, for oneself and uh, not for the other and not for the globe as a whole. At the same time, this, this, this mindfulness, um, would you say that there is a, a, a cultural paradigm shift in the midst in that is really promising that allows us uh, to see the dawn of a new human culture? Or is it some, some nice uh, gimmick uh, that we can basically meditate to be more productive? Do you <laughs> see uh, that, that there's something really, uh, a beginning possibility of uh, a profound uh, cultural shift in a positive way? Or is it just contextualized by our usual understanding of productivity and uh, kind of... Uh, our everyday understanding of life. Uh, where are we as a culture in this? <laughs> well, there's an awful lot in what you said, so let, <laughs> let me see, <laughs> see what I can reflect on there. Um, first off, uh, let's acknowledge that there are so many, in the culture at large, there are so many movements and ideas and dynamics and forces operating that... Uh, it's very hard to say culture is moving in one particular way. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's uh, obviously all of us know that, but it's worth emphasizing that it's just so complex. And within it, we can see certain movements and openings and streams and, and forces. Uh, putting, let me speak first uh, to your question of the larger picture of a cultural shift. And one way that is very valuable looking at this, one thing that has clearly been happening over the last 50 years since the advent of psychedelics and then the introduction of Asian contemplative practices and then after that the reviving of Western contemplative practices is that our culture is going for, is moving from what anthropologists call a monophasic culture to a polyphasic culture. We are moving from a monophasic culture, a culture in which we emphasize and draw our understanding of the world and ourselves from only one state of consciousness, the usual waking state, and we are shifting towards a polyphasic culture, a culture which, which makes use of and values and draws its understanding from multiple states, from dreams, from reverie, from hypnosis, from meditation, from contemplation, etc. So that's a really important shift, which is almost not, which is not recognized almost at all. So something mm -hmm. very important there is happening. I think we could all agree that we can see that beginning. You know, we now have an understanding of altered states, both as a uh, some understanding anyway as a culture, and, and now in even in mainstream psychology. So that's one big context. And if we look at particular uh, practices such as mindfulness, we find again a two-edged process. We find the introduction of these very powerful, transformative, healing, maturing clarifying, awakening practices, and we find them assimilated into the conventional worldview and used for conventional values. Mm -hmm. And it, there's a very important concept that comes out of Piaget, the, the great uh, developmental French, develop, or, sorry, Swiss developmental psychologist. He drew a distinction between 
of, of what can happen when we have a new experience, he said we can either assimilate it into our current understanding and worldview, or we, and that's kind of a stagnation, or we can accommodate, that is, we can allow our belief system, our worldview to expand to include this new, new experience within a deeper and broader and, and a larger framework. So if we look at that from a cultural perspective, we could say that a practice such as mindfulness is largely assimilated within the conventional worldview and its value system, such as, yeah, this will make us more productive, it'll increase the bottom line, it'll <laughs> reduce our stress and anxiety and enable us to work harder. And <laughs> the beauty of these practices is people get more from them than they expect <laughs> because they are inherently transformative. So, <laughs> so someone may... I, I, and I'm sure you know a lot of people who went in to reduce, for example, their blood pressure and found their life changed. So I look at it as kind of a Trojan horse that that is, is sneaking into our culture in some ways just being assimilated into the conventional worldview, but it's also having a larger and more profound effects than a lot of people bargained for. Mm-hmm. First of all, I appreciate that you uh, brought this warning also in uh, that uh, uh, one shouldn't too fast talk about the one development of culture where we're going because there are a lot, many things going on at the same time, uh, and uh, it's maybe uh, safer to talk about that there are cultural openings. Uh, that yes, are happening nice. that have a potential for the multiplicity of the culture that we're living in. And we're living in a multiplicity of culture in our Western world. And also our world is bigger than our Western world. And uh, our global world is rapidly becoming one world in many ways, uh, being connected and interacting with each other in all these different levels. So that there's a lot going on at the same time. At the same time, there is a kind of a, a, a dominant culture Uh, that is uh, of European-American origin that uh, comes from a particular cosmology uh, that was born in the 15th century in European Enlightenment. It has a lot to do with uh, individuation, with rationality, with a subject-object understanding of the world that created a lot of beautiful and powerful things uh, which we call modernity, democracy, everything uh, uh, is based on that. At the, sa- at the same time, it seems that uh, modern democratic, uh, also capitalism, uh, with all w- what it brought to the world, and I mean the good thing, uh, because we really developed a lot of wealth in this, but uh, there seems to be a lot of questions h- how this particular cosmology and understanding of who we are as human maybe creates more and more difficulties for us to live as a global civilization. Um, my question, first, would you agree with that? Uh, and second, would you think that this kind of new spirituality that we kind of touched on, uh, mindfulness being one of them, has answers for this? and has something where it's worth looking deeper into to kind of transform, uh, develop our understanding of who we are as humans and also who we are as a human culture. Yeah, beautiful. 
questions. I love the way you <laughs> you frame these big <laughs> these big questions and challenges. So uh, you you gave us a, a picture of basically cultural evolution over the last few centuries and some of the challenges we're facing from that. And I think I would agree very much and put what you've said in kind of a um, a culturally a cultural evolution. Uh, framework we could think of for example Hegel with his idea of the of uh, that every stage has its inbuilt every cultural stage has built into it its own limitations mm -hmm. and that sooner or later we will run into those and they will evoke a evoke a reaction and hopefully call forth a synthesis so we could look at we could look at what's happening in a kind of Hegelian dialectical terms as yes, with the, with the Renaissance, with the, with the birth of science, uh, with a, this worldview that science has basically come to provide us a largely material, a largely reductionistic perspective that served us in many ways, as you said, gave us many gifts and, we are clearly facing the limitations of that worldview and that perspective. And clearly that, you, that kind of scientifically dominated understanding of the world and life is very useful for, uh, for technology. And it's not clearly not adequate for a full, fully satisfying human life. The idea that we are just the products of ran the random clashing of atoms uh, without any meaning or larger purpose, etc., does not fit with our the experience we have. Particularly, the more deeply we go into our experience. So, the so your sec so I would agree with that. And the second que second question you then raised is do these new forms of spirituality and these new practices or some of these ancient practices brought to our, our culture and times, do they have some answers? And uh, I think clearly they do. They don't No one thing has the entire answer. And I think that's very important for us to recognize because it's easy to, and we see some people see assuming that, for example, if we just do spiritual practice, that will answer all our problems. And uh, I used to <laughs> believe that myself, and it clearly isn't so. Uh, another thing that's really important we probably should emphasize here, it's not just pra practices, but it's also how skillfully they are used and for what purpose. And you touched on this, this earlier. So do these new practices have something to add? Absolutely. Do the worldviews and cultures and wisdom traditions out of which they come have a complementary and enlarging perspective to offer us, one which uh, complements, enlarges, outcontextualizes, integrates the dominant scientific materialistic worldview? Absolutely. Um, and one of the tasks of our time, which no time has ever, <clears throat> no culture has ever had before, is is the updating of our spiritual traditions to include contemporary knowledge and science. And throughout his, we have a double challenge. Throughout history, uh, whenever a 
tradition comes into a new culture, there's a, there's a period of translation and assimilation. And uh, Carl Jung introduced a wonderful idea of a Gnostic intermediary. He described a Gnostic intermediary as someone who, who is able to translate a wisdom tradition to a new culture. And he said that requires three things. First, you have to imbibe the wisdom yourself. It's, you can't just know it theoretically. You have to really imbibe it and become it. Then you have to learn the language and conceptual system, the culture you want to translate to. And then you have to translate so as to create an aha experience of, oh, yes, that makes sense. But so with the introduction, of, for example, of Buddhist or yogic or Confucian or Taoist or Islamic practices to the West, we, we, many of us are trying to work as Gnostic intermediaries to explain and legitimate and, and make these comprehensible. But we're also called to do something else. This is the first time we are called to translate these cultures and traditions and practices from an agrarian worldview to a postmodern or metamodern worldview and make sense of them not only across cultures, but across eras. So this is, this is, we kind of, we're all, anyone who's deeply involved in practice and in responding to the great issues of our time is really a Gnostic intermediary, whether they know it or not. <laughs> and uh, so that's one of the callings of our, uh, callings of our time. So those are a few reflections to your, those great questions of yours. The, the reason why I asked this question, and uh, uh, I mean, you really touched on this in, in, in your res response in, 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 in different ways, is because I'm looking forward, what does this new spirituality really contribute in order to the answers that we need uh, personally, but also as a culture in the time that we're living? And if I may just uh, say some uh, uh, kind of thoughts on, from my side, and I was just yeah, curious what, what, what do you think? Because when you look about this different spiritual practice, from shamanistic spiritual practice, from Eastern spiritual practices, uh, Sufi practices, uh, uh, also kind of esoteric uh, Christianity, uh, there's a whole variety, and you can't kind of put them just uh, into one box. Uh, the, the, mm -hmm. it's a whole, I, I don't think that uh, it's fair to just uh, kind of think that they are the same thing in different disguise. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's something that I find connecting and that I also see in the mindfulness uh, movement, if, if, if I may say so, that is a response to our usual way we are in the world where we are very much because of our uh, let's call it European American identity very aware of our individual separate existence and our pragmatic rational way of being able to relate to the world mostly as uh, kind of uh, material facts where we can create wealth of all of that so there's a, a certain um, Form we are in the world, where we see us very much as individuated separate selves, and uh, we can act with reality objects. But all these practices, uh, I think, uh, 
show us two things. One, in different ways, a form of non-separation. That maybe, uh, yes, we are highly individuated people. And I think this is also important to acknowledge that this is really an achievement of Western Enlightenment to really honor our individual adult uh, identity as something, that, as someone who can take responsibility. That's a powerful thing. Uh, but that our sense of separation maybe also needs uh, so being softened by reality that uh, there is a non-separation when we just pay attention that is much more real than we usually are aware of. And the other thing, and also these traditions uh, do this in very different ways, but they do it. It's an awareness of, uh, if I just made use the word, uh, the sacred. Whatever that is, there's different understanding. There's a different understanding of shamanistic understanding of sacred or Catholic understanding of sacred. But there's something uh, where I allow uh, whatever the verb means, uh, 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 but that there's a resonance with this word, something is sacred, uh, that is beyond pragmatic. Uh, and I feel that this is for us in the way we live our lives and uh, how we live our culture, uh, something important to look into, that maybe we have something to learn about our non-separation and about the reality of the sacred. And that this is something where maybe I'm still learning, the learning points of us personally in the culture are, and where there's a lot to learn from, yeah, also transpersonal psychology, integral theory, uh, uh, all these new attempts to kind of go beyond uh, just the, the usual way of understanding who we are as humans. Beautiful. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'd love to love to just uh, have some resp responses to that. Um, so you, the big question you had was, what are the contributions of these different spiritual traditions, and how do they speak to the issues of our time? That was the kind of context of your question, and then you raised questions about. How do they, do they have a contribution to make to our understanding of, of life and the world and to the way we value it? And what do the practices themselves uh, do in that way? And then there's something you alluded to, but perhaps we want to draw out, and that is how, how do we use them to creatively respond to the issues of our, our time? Uh, clearly, as you said, there are significant differences across traditions, and the old idea of just you know the you know the, the transcendental unity of traditions, religions, uh, that kind of perennialism, I think, no longer holds. But but there, as you say, there are common themes, and there are common understandings, and they do have a comp offer a complementary, enriching uh, understanding to our materialist uh, dominant worldview. And they include, as you said, very different, very valuable complementary understandings of, for example, human nature. That the more, and I think the beauty of some of these of these practices is that they, unlike traditional, uh, conventional level religion, conventional religion centers on a narrative or on a story. Mm -hmm. And if you believe the narrative, you're saved. If you don't, you're in trouble. But Post-conventional or better trans-conventional religion, 
practices center on a mind, uh, a training of heart and mind to cultivate qualities and capacities and virtues. And these are very, very different understandings of the nature of religion. And unfortunately, our culture usually only understands the first, the conventional understanding of religion as faith-based. So this is spiritual, these spiritual traditions and practices bring a very different understanding, first of religion, and then second of our human nature. But the beauty of these practices is we don't have to take their assumptions on faith. We can test them all for ourselves in our own practice, within our own, uh, the, within our own minds and see to what extent they hold true for us. And what I'm, what I think anyone who does deep practice in an experimental way finds is that we are not only more than we thought, we more, more than we can think. And that our deeper nature is way more than uh, can be embraced by any materialist, reductionistic perspective. And that's something we just discover in our own ways. Then, of course, they, both the traditions themselves and what we discover as we practice offer us very different understandings of things like motivation. It becomes very clear that, for example, just getting more things is is nice, but it's not never fully or completely satisfying. It gives us a very different understanding of, for example, ethics. At a conventional level, in our culture, we think of ethics as a kind of self-sacrifice. But the more deeply we practice, the more we discover that ethical living is actually a win-win situation. We, Our lives work better. We feel better when we're ethical. So it, now it becomes enlightened self, ethics becomes enlightened self-interest. And at a still deeper level, a, a deep contemplative level, as we explore ethics, we find that, for example, any time we're tempted to be unethical, to hurt or to harm people, including ourselves, if we look in at that time, we find our mind dominated by motives such as greed and greed or, or jealousy and dominated by painful, destructive emotions like fear, anger, hatred, etc. And so ethic, we... we we move to a still deeper understanding of ethics from which we are spontaneously moved to treat everyone, ourselves included, in the most benevolent ways possible. So these are very different understandings of human nature, of motivation, of ethics, of purpose, which are transmitted from the traditions, but which we also come to see for ourselves. So, so these are, uh, these are, as you, you said, very important complements to our contemporary scientific world, world, conventional worldview. And, of course, the challenge of our time is to integrate these, not to deny, as you said, the value of science, but to integrate them into a, integrate it into a larger perspective. And then, uh, as a result of this, to recognize as we do, as we practice deeply, that we don't practice for ourselves alone. We practice for a larger purpose, which includes the welfare and well-being of others. So, so that leads to the question of then what, okay, from this deeper, newer understanding I have, what's the most strategic contribution I can make? And then 
looking, that becomes a practice in itself. It traditionally was called karma yoga, but of course there are, now we think of it as sacred service or any other number of, number of terms. So all this is, uh, all this is actually just an amplification on what you were saying and an agreement with what you were, what you were saying. And, uh, a, uh, a, a, an honoring of the, the, the the value of these new practices and and the availability of these traditions at this time and the the wonderful opportunity we have of both doing the practices and creating some larger understanding which acknowledges the the knowledge uses the science and knowledge of our time in the larger context that these practices and traditions offer us yeah no, I, I very much agree, and I, I would like to to uh, emphasize what you said about uh, the necessity of integration and the larger context, because I started this conversation with this very simple, but of course, uh, kind of also tricky question, what, what does it mean to live a good life? Uh, because, of course, in in one way, this is the this is the this is the question in the end of of yes. human life, what, uh, and everything is included in this one question: What does it mean to, to live to live a good life? And we touched on uh, several points, and I consciously tried to really open up the picture to, to to big contexts where the depth of spirituality, the depth of uh, the wisdom tradition, but also also the depth of the world and world history uh, has has part in that. And when I hear you uh, emphasizing the importance of integration in the big picture, it, it's also uh, something that we just have to admit it, which is demanding uh, yes. because uh, to integrate uh, means also that you have to be aware of. So it's also something that you not, you can't just do on a cushion or in, in, a, in a praying position. You have to be aware of many dimensions of reality, which is also history, psychology, uh, a lot of things. And I don't mean that every single one of us has to be aware of everything because that's kind of a, a daunting thing to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but we, we can be together in something and create an understanding where different people of us hold different parts of it so that we can bring together it as a living cultural whole. But maybe an integral culture means that, so that uh, the beauty also of our Western modernist uh, rational society can flower when its limitation can be seen uh, in the light of the traditions. As we see the limitations of the traditions in the light of Western science. But this means something that at least um, uh, there has there have to be people who engage with really trying to be there for um, the complexity of life that we uh, uh, that we are confronted with and allow ourselves uh, to f uh, to find new forms of integration and also to see that maybe our mental way how to do that uh, won't. Um, be able to do this. Uh, ah, yes. What I mean is, uh, and that's partly also, uh, if, you, if you may say so, uh, kind of a question mark on some forms of application of integral theory. Uh, the, the idea that you can put everything into a map and then you just ha have to practice it. 
that that maybe you are asking too lot of the, too much of the mind uh, that uh, you're more talking about how to do this uh, in how we live together, how we hold, and uh, some people have to dive into intellectually all of that, but basically an integral culture means uh, maybe a, a dialogical culture where all these different parts can speak to each other, can speak to each other where traditions with what, what they have to contribute speak to us as modern scientifically educated humans, that they, we allow them to speak to us and see what speaks again. And at the same time, see that there are different cultures. If I may bring this also in, it's another level. Different cultures out there that are not just European American. There are a thousand years old Indian culture, Chinese culture, African culture, uh, and uh, to allow that even these cultures speak to each other in order to find a way that uh, some form of wholeness is forming as we talk. And uh, this maybe so sounds a little kind of uh, vague, but in, in, in the other way, uh, I think in this dialogical form of holding this together and allow, allow it to be seen in non-separation is something that is um, a way where the different qualities of wisdom, science, uh, different cultures uh, are naturally kind of informing each other and maybe that's much more what an integral culture can be about than having a map about everything. Well, Thomas, I have a very simple answer to that. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, beautifully said. I would agree completely. And clearly, one of the this is one of the great gifts and opportunities and simultaneously one of the great challenges of our time that we have we have the meeting of cultures, we have the meeting and mixing of religious traditions, we have the, the we have new disciplines uh, uh, and new knowledge at uh, accumulating at exponential rates. And the question, one of the great questions of life for us at this stage is how do we stay open to this richness and complexity and overwhelming demands uh, in a way which is healthy, uh, contributory, and not overwhelming. And I think you made an important point that, well, you made many important points. One of them was that that none of us can do it alone. In fact, it's not clear that all of us can do it. Uh, in fact, one of the great challenges of our time is the sheer complexity of the the world and civilization we've built and whether we have the wherewithal to manage this complexity. Uh, and yet you pointed to the necessity of staying open to and to recognizing that uh, an appropriate opening to this extraordinary richness involves many modalities, not just the intellectual and conceptual, but the intuitive, the contemplative, the symbolic, the artistic, the aesthetic, etc. So, and all of us, are, all of us are specialized. You know, I'm somewhat cerebral. I have very little artistic capacity. So, so for me, that it's mainly a mainly a, an intellectual opening. But, but we are called 
to an openness. And, and one of the beauties we discover as we do contemplative practice is that it is possible to, to be in a way in which we are simply open and allowing the world into us and that allowing that separation between ourselves and others to dissolve and even the separation between ourselves and the world to dissolve and coming to trust in the, in our own minds capacities for assimilating and integrating, not through a conscious putting, you know, an intellectual fitting of ideas together consciously, but rather by an intuitive apprehension, which allows a, um, a holistic, uh, transconceptual knowing or appreciation to emerge. And, and of course, it's still lim- very limited for all of us. Gee, there's so, there's so much in what you said, but <laughs> um, I could say some more, but is, is there somewhere else specifically you'd like to go with this? No, I... I, I'm very, I'm very happy what you said about the openness, because uh, and the openness and the non-separation, because that may be my own version of uh, be, uh, of oversimplification, but I say it anyway. Uh, uh, what I find uh, most valuable uh, in these contemplative practices and 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 the reemergence of the wisdom traditions is exactly this acknowledgement of non-separation uh, as it is right now, whatever this means, I don't have to grasp it intellectually, just acknowledging in a conversation like this, on a deep heart level, non-separation allows me to be different here with the other, with you in this, and honoring the non-separation. Mm. And there is a guiding principle that is beyond my uh, rational mental capacities that comes in here that also holds uh, that's the second part that I mentioned before that there's something sacred in being together in this way. Yes. And this may be oversimplified, but there's uh, I see some guiding principle in acknowledging this, and I see this uh, in in the way shamanistic culture relates to nature. I see this how. Indian culture uh, relates to the transcendence and you can bring this in all the different variations and only they have the limitations and, and shadow sides, all that. I don't want to neglect that, but there's something where uh, we are uh, not just in a, in a conversation like this, but also in a conversation like this, but also we as a society uh, can be guided by an acknowledgement of uh, that non-separation is something that is accessible when we just uh, allow to be open to that. And then the rest is a, is a finding out, like this conversation is a finding out. And uh, maybe this finding out never has an end. And that's maybe the, even the beauty of this. Yes. But, but there is something where, uh, where, where I find that uh, all uh, the new age spirituality, the, uh, the uh, all of transpersonal psychology brought to it, all our being able to uh, break out of the cocoon and be there and, and find also trainings to break out, to allow to, of each other in all this insecurity and also kind of the tension because, of course, as always, uh, 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 things don't fit necessarily together and there's, there's, there's greater friction, but to have the soul strength to be together in this. 
I find is uh, is is one of the big contribution of this uh, new form of wisdom, searching wisdom, also in our in the cultural context that we are in right now. What we are seeing in American European societies falling apart to bring this in in order for human creativity to flower. So that's a very concrete and I admit oversimplified uh, uh, way to look at it where I, I think that uh, this uh, spiritual search has a real contribution that's much more than just me feeling more happy, but it's something that's needed in our society to heal. Yes, and again, I would I would agree completely. And there are uh, several things in there I'd love that you just quickly went mentioned, which I'd love to draw out. You said, for example, this exploration is never ending, and uh, and yes, indeed. And one of the things that that clearly is uh, that comes with spiritual practice and is essential at this time when we're moving into so many unknown new areas is is a an openness to mystery the recognition mm -hmm. that at bottom mm -hmm. life experience everything is at fundamental when we look really look deeply it's it's mysterious mm -hmm. and my wife used to say you know one of our challenges is to befriend the mystery Mm -hmm. Because usually we're very defended against mm -hmm. recognizing mystery. It feels it brings up insecurity, not knowing. And yet there's this recognition across traditions and cultures that, uh, that mystery is really crucial. For example, in the Eastern temples, uh, the, the twin lions which guard the gates of the temples are sometimes said to represent confusion and paradox. <laughs> and the person who would have wis wisdom must, must move through that not knowing. And, uh, and if we look at the recent research on developmental psychology and, and the, some of the, uh, capacities that come online at, higher developmental stages, the post so-called post-conventional stages, we find that one of the capacities is a an openness to mystery. That people recognize the limits of the intellect and become comfortable with that and open to and if we're if we're open to the mystery, then we can be comfortable with the just the extraordinary richness and complexity, incomprehensible as it may be, but it allows us to open to that. And that opening allows us to be with it and respond to it more creatively and, mm. and effectively. So, and the two other things you, you alluded to briefly, one is that in this time we are called to respond creatively. We've never faced these kind of social or global issues before. We've never had such society and issues on such scales. We've never had so many people, such knowledge. So we're really called not just to contribute and to serve and to respond, but to respond creatively, mm. both to our own lives, to be the creative artists of our own lives and to be creative responders to the great issues and challenges. And that uh, you implied there is a call to service that, that as we open to the world and its many needs, the the pull of of suffering and pain and challenge 
becomes a, a kind of sacred calling, sacred service, as you said at the very beginning of our conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, again, uh, thank you very much. Uh, also, particularly bringing the mystery in, because I think uh, if you would not have brought it in, it would have been missing in this conversation, because maybe <laughs> it's even the core piece or uh, where everything else uh, can take place in, in our kind of acknowledging the mystery and the beauty of the mystery. And it sounds kind of a little kitschy uh, if I bring it like that, but in fact it is not. It's, it is an ex- existential question. And to allow this is uh, something that has a lot to do with, with uh, in our pre-conversation, uh, we said that we would like to talk about maturity. Uh, we, we more talked about the good life, but this maturity is also the capacity uh, to allow the mystery to be part or even the foundation of our being together uh, as humans and as a human society. We really want to bring it up in, in, in that way without taking away of uh, everything that modern life and modern science has to bring I, and the curiosity and the creative response that you bring in. But there's something where we have to uh, um connect uh, with the fact that uh, the mystery is an important, uh, maybe the important ingredients that allows us in the end uh, to be uh, mature human beings. Uh, it's uh, kind of uh, strange that may sound, but I, I, I deeply mm-hmm. think so. And to do this in a way that is uh, acknowledging um, modernity, the plural, uh, pluralistic cap- capacities of postmodern consciousness, uh, to, to do this allows us also to have a contribution how we uh, can live a world culture that is a world culture where we can meet uh, and where there's not just a class of clash of civilizations as it seems to be now to kind of uh, happen on us and where I think this is needed also response because it is needed for us to find creative solutions uh, where we go. Uh, as a culture and as a humanity. So we are also in the end of our time. Uh, I know we, we only touched uh, some uh, points, uh, but I am very grateful for what you brought in uh, and the wisdom also of your life, the different areas uh, of your expertise, and uh, that we really could draw out how these are uh, important ingredients for us uh, in, in our search how to live a good life and how to live a mature life in the context of the time that we're living in. Well, thank you so much, Thomas. It's just a delight to have a conversation like this and uh, and to explore together, which it really feels like it's been a wonderful exploration together, and also for the opportunity, of course, of sharing it with your listeners. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful and uh, very grateful for the work you're doing in so many ways. So thanks so much. Thank you so much, and good evening here from Frankfurt in Germany. <laughs>